Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. <clears throat> it's middle of February 2023. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Karma 3, a myeloma study. I wasn't going to talk about this, um, but because uh, I had seen a lot of great points made on Twitter by folks like Manny Moindine and Luciana Costa, <clears throat> who I worked with uh, during um, my residency, actually, who made really great points about this, and I'll repeat some of their uh, astute uh, critiques uh, and takeaways from this. Um, but it is, you know, a practice-changing study for the time being, and um, I get to use the title Instant Karma, which is a really great John Lennon song. So let's dig into this. This is Idacel, Idacatagene Vic Lucel, or, <clears throat> quote, standard, regimens for they don't put they don't have standard in quotes in the title of this like I did for relapse refractory myeloma multiple myeloma this is published uh, in this week's edition of the New England Journal of Medicine came out <clears throat> early um, uh, last week so these are patients who have seen 380 some patients randomized two to one to the CAR-T BCMA product, uh, Idacel, or what they call standard regimens. Now, as, as Dr. Costa pointed out, we don't actually have a standard regimen for people like this who are, who've seen an IMID, they've seen bortezomib, they've seen Dara, <clears throat> and in fact, 95% of these folks not just had seen their tubumab, but they were refractory. Um, and we really don't have a, a standard of what to do if you've had disease progression on a Dara tubumab regimen. You've already received an IMID, and a proteasome inhibitor. So those are the three lines of therapy or three classes all these patients had to be exposed to, triple exposed, but not necessarily triple uh, refractory. So uh, they randomized two to one to the CAR-T, um, and the one being one of five standard regimens, Darapomdex, so Daratumab, Pomalidomide, Dexmedazone, Darabortezomib, Dex, Exazomib, Lidolidomide, and Dex, Carfilzomib, and Dex, and then Elituzumab, pomalidomide and dex. You don't feel great about any of those regimens, to be honest with you. <clears throat> the first thing I thought of would be carfilzomib, pomalidomide, dex, um, would be one that you'd see a lot in community for people like this. Um, you know, we, we we haven't seen that, you know, more dara or is a tuxmap after daratumab has a whole lot of benefits. So we know there's, there's actually not an answer to what to do in these patients. So uh, I think you could argue that maybe, um, you know, folks who didn't have a transplant, maybe even some <clears throat> some old VMP, some some melphalan, um, some VP or MP, uh, melphalan prednisone, one of the original regimens, an alkylating agent of some kind, would probably have activity, especially for those <clears throat> with really aggressive disease. Um, so not a great regimen, uh, or not a great comparison, but there was never going to be a great comparator to this arm in the future to clistamab, maybe. <clears throat> so anyway, primary endpoint here is progression-free survival. Um, you know, when you're this far down the treatment algorithm for myeloma, I think overall survival should be your primary endpoint. Um, but their hierarchical testing was PFS first, response rate second, and then overall survival. Why are you looking for a response in the fourth line setting? I, I don't understand. Seems ridiculous to me, but what do I know? All right, so when you look at the um, our, our consort diagram of what people got. So 251 are assigned to Idacel. <clears throat> Nine, um, uh, or sorry, six don't make it to even to, to leukapheresis. Um, and of the 254, only 225 actually receive Idacel. You got to consider that. Um, 
Some of those patients um, had disease progression. They came off study, uh, and three of the 249 who had leukapheresis had a manufacturing failure. So you're talking, um, you know, a couple percentage of people are not going to be able to actually <clears throat> get this while they're, even though that this uh, may be the plan. The most common drug regimen used in the standard arm was Darapomdex, uh, followed pretty equally by Carfilzomib-Dex, Elotuzumab-Pomdex, Izazomib, uh, Linamide-Dex, and then Darabortezomib-Dex. I would like to see more patients get Carfilzomib here. Um, but again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we can critique the control group, but there's not a great control group in the eyes of the regulatory body, which is what the authors and designers of the study likely have their eye on uh, in designing this study. All right, so the makeup of these patients, I do want to give a, a, a acknowledgement to the authors here. Maybe this is, was asked by uh, by the publisher of the New England Journal of Medicine. In the, um, in the NEJM supplement, there is a table for this about representativeness of the patient population. So when I look at this as someone who reads myeloma studies, when I see a median age of patients as 63, I, I know that's younger than the typical myeloma patient. Well, there is a table in the supplement, uh, the supplementary appendix, that talk about what is representative, and they say the median age of diagnosis is 69. They say most of our patients were male. This is what you would expect in myeloma, in the general population. They say only 7% of patients were black in this study. Uh, it's probably more like 20% based on meta-analyses and other data. So they do a good job if you're a novice and you're not used to reading myeloma study after myeloma study. It's a good, a good idea. And as you would expect, of course, they're probably a little bit healthier. They're younger. Uh, the range of people in the study, um, like there's a 30-year-old in the IDSL arm and a 42-year-old on the standard arm. Probably a very different disease biology than the people who are 70 uh, enrolled in this study. Um, I won't go through all the baseline or any more of the baseline demographics with regards to risk. I do want to point out prior therapy. Um, you know, 88, 90% are refractory to an IMID. Um, the, the vast majority of that being lilinamide, 75%. Um, when you look at uh, the refractoriness, there about 25% of the people were not refractory to a proteasome inhibitor. That's why I said I would have liked to see more people on a carfilzomib-based regimen here. Um, 95% were refractory to daratumab, so in total, two-thirds are triple-class refractory. So difficult to treat population. Um, our uh, median progression-free survival, and again, this was the primary endpoint, was 13 months versus four months. So huge separation of our Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, one thing um, in their statistical plan, they state that they uh, they designed it based off of thinking IDASL might get a 13-month PF, median PFS versus a nine-month median PFS from the standard regimen. I'm thinking that nine-month mark comes from non-DARA refractory patients who've seen like two to four lines of therapy, not in people that are, are this heavily pretreated and refractory. So huge separation of the PFS curves. The, um, they look like two slides. The IDASL slide goes straight down in a linear fashion. Uh, the standard regimen goes straight down very steep. And then about six months starts to level out and follow roughly the same slope of, of IDASL. So huge fattening of the curves between six uh, and 12 months. Now the second primary endpoint was response rate. So 70% response rate in IDASL. Um, a lot of those 35% uh, were stringent complete responses, so some really great responses. Now in the standard regimen, and I just said they, 
none of these arms were great. They had a 40% response rate, 42% response rate. And we see this a lot in myelomas. Folks will just recycle, you know. Um, the, some, some of these people, if they, if they were, say, had been refractory and progressed on daratumumab, but it had been more than a couple years since they've been on lilimumab and bortezomib, in the community, people will do that. And you'll get some, you'll get some, uh, some, uh, some disease control, and maybe even some response going back to these old drugs because the tumors adapt. Now they'll adapt quicker uh, to regimens that they have seen before, most likely. But the telling thing here to me in this study is, is uh, well, before we get to the death rate, let's look at the side effects. As you might expect, um, you know, cytokine release syndrome and, and neurotoxicity, you see 88% of people in ISL had some cytokine release syndrome, 4% of that being grade 3 or 4. Uh, two people died from cytokine release syndrome. 15% neuro event, only 3% grade 3 or worse, no deaths from that. Um, from uh, grade 5 toxicity, so fatal toxicity, 14% of people uh, died from uh, uh, from an adverse event or had a grade 5 adverse event from Idacel. Uh, that is 6% in the standard regimen. Okay, So certainly more toxic and more toxic deaths. And you got to consider that when you see that, that large benefit of PFS. The supplementary appendix has, the last table is the total number of deaths. We don't have an overall survival Kappemeyer curve. Um, it is still early in this study as far as follow-up, um, but the total number of deaths are reported, and 30% of people in Idacel died versus only 26% in the standard regimen. Now, this is not uh, statistically compared, um, but there were more overall deaths. There's a trend towards more mortality in Idacel. Uh, you could assume, and it is an assumption, we don't know this, that they have you know equal uh, amount of time of follow-up and stuff like that on this. You could say survival is a time to event endpoint, which is reasonable. But when you have a, such a massive PFS benefit, and you're not seeing even a trend of survival benefit, that raises questions. And certainly, uh, one of the, the likeliest explanation is this discrepancy, uh, or this this increased fatal drug grade five event in the idle cell arm. Uh, this table attempts to tell you. Um, what the cause of death was, 17% due to disease progression in both arms. Adverse events, 6% in both arms, which does not match <laughs> the 14% grade five event they, they have in table three of the publication. Other causes, 6% versus 2%, but these other causes of death include, quote, death, which probably means the death certificate didn't say, or they, the investigators, researchers, were not able to elucidate what the cause of death was. So it's probably best just to look at total death. Now with longer follow-up, we'll get an idea. Um, hopefully, are there certain people where maybe IDSL is too risky because of its toxicity profile um, and, and maybe find a better standard regimen. But because of this, this um, statistically significant and uh, this magnitude of progression-free survival benefit, I would think this is gonna be incorporated into the myeloma guidelines uh, pretty quickly with some caveats about, you know, the toxicities are, are pretty severe and um, you need to know what you're doing if you're giving this drug uh, because it is, it is pretty darn uh, toxic. And if you don't know what you're doing, well, Instant Karma's gonna get you. All right, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDDip and you follow both the podcast uh, follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod and until I talk to you again remember doses matter and